A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Hi again, this is Raghu, and this is Ramdas Here and Now. Got a podcast. It's from October 87, Creation, Creativity, and Spirituality. And before I get into a little bit of a description of what we're going to be listening to, I want to mention a couple of things. As I have been saying, and as you well know, if you've been listening to the podcast on Be Here Now Network, not just Ramdas. Uh, 1440.org, 1440 Multiversity. They are our, wow, we've been, we've been partners with them now, collaborating for quite some time. They uh, have this fantastic retreat center near Santa Cruz, absolutely gorgeous. And there is such a plethora, isn't that a great word? of events of all kinds that take place there that I really do urge you to get up on their website, 1440.org, and check it out. Now, in uh, I always, not always, but I sometimes say to people and myself, you know, it's good to break habits Every once in a while, do something that you wouldn't normally do. Now, at 1440, they have all sorts of people, many of them who appear on, on, on the podcasts. Um, certainly, many of them have appeared on, on my other podcast, Mind Rolling, which is on the network. And they're just fabulous Dharma teachers. But suddenly, I saw something. I don't know these people, but if 1440 is hosting them, they've got to be experts in their field, and they're doing a retreat called Immersive Movement. Tom Myers and Karen Gertner. And why it caught my eye is the uh, on the subject line, they talked about body movement can change our inner state. And I thought, wow, that is so right. Of course, yoga provides that. Of course, uh, Qigong provides that. But uh, this seemed like a really unique thing. It's taking place uh, at the end of November, November 25th to 30, 30th. So just, uh, hey, here's a, an opportunity perhaps to change the habitual patterns of saying, I don't do that kind of stuff. Well, Take a look at that, will you? Okay, that's 1440, everybody. Or to go to 1440.org. And also, I want to remind, Ram Dass's book came out. 
just uh, in, uh, not a few weeks ago from when this podcast airs, Walking Each Other Home with Ramdas and Mirabai Bush. And it is a conversation around love and death. And uh, it is absolutely a wonderful book. And right here and now, I am suggesting you all think about not only getting the book for yourself, but this is a perfect holiday gift for a loved one or anyone, a co-worker. And you can go to and help out the foundation, Love, Serve, Remember Foundation, by purchasing it through ramdas.org and go to the shop. Okay? All right. Creation, creativity, and spirituality. Ramdas starts this thing out talking about how Maharaji... And he tells you know, this is a this is not a new thing, but it's certainly a worthy thing of us to continue to delve into. Don't you see, Ramdas? It's all perfect, which is the probably the toughest thing that Maharaji ever said to us to fathom. Perfect? What's going on in this world? Sure doesn't seem perfect, and of course that is from the relative duality separation paranoia fear base that we live in a lot of the time that we could never see it as perfect so he talks about this so i think this is a uh, something for there's something in it here for all of us um, and and the perfection is in the perfection of the unfolding of the law and in regards to one's own human heart and the nature of suffering which is this is what we all are faced with on a day-to-day basis, both our own and others who are suffering in the world. And if you, you embrace it enough in your being, in a, const, in a different context, a context of, of compassion, joy, that process is one that allows you to be quiet enough so that you can look around and see it all and say, yes, it is all happening in a lawful way. Now, admittedly, I ain't there, and I'm railing out at the horrific stuff that's going on, and I am not in any kind of equanimity, and I am reacting, but again, what I believe I need to do, and we all need to do, is move to a place where we aim at something. And that's why Maharaji, who is for us uh, in that body and without that body, the pinnacle of what a human being can be. And that is somebody who does perfectly um, harmonize with Dharma, with the law, with what is, rather than what we want it to be, rather than railing again, uh, out against the suffering that we, and I mean collective humanity, cause. So there is something to aspire to. And uh, that's a bunch of what Ramdas is, is talking about here. You know, he talks about, well, once you realize this, you don't stop doing it. You know, the answer is not doing nothing. It's, it is not doing nothing. The, the, the opportunity here is that, be, that beings that we have is 
we have the opportunity to choose to create out of this dark darkness, to work with this darkness, work with the stuff that you take birth with, and that your, of course, karma is, a, is an important byword here, and you take birth into your own creation, Ramdas says. You realize you are caught in your own creation and you work towards transforming that. And um, he talks about riding the edge between chaos and cosmos. And you'll have to listen to this. I'm, I'm just uh, I'm spouting out a soundbite here, but there's a, a depth to what he's trying to say around that. Uh, and the same with talking about karma and grace being one. Uh, and that's around intervention of a being like Maharaji and lawful unfolding. How are they one and when are they not one? Um Oh, by the way, there's this great story. I think it's been in other podcasts that we've put out. Ramdas on Mescaline at the Jazz Fest with Maynard Ferguson. I mean, it is such a great story. I guess I just like listening to them over and over. Maybe somebody out there is like, okay, we heard that one. Uh, skip it if you don't like it, though. You know, there's nothing to do. Um so in terms of the work of transformation, in terms of talking about taking birth into your own creation, so extricating oneself from the personality is just lightening and loosening happen, okay? So your personality becomes style rather than root identity. That's a huge one right there. And that's extricating is a great word, just extricating yourself from clinging, reacting, right, fear, and suddenly you don't change into another person, but you, you, you are more of the style of that personality rather than identifying with it. That's a, that's a biggie right there. Um, you know, how we, uh, he talks about how we look, uh, our model of reality, we look through that model to confirm everything in the world reflects our model, which is a problem. Then he talks about a computer that is empty, that only optimizes, that optimizes on a constant basis. That was Maharaji. Um, so as our minds get less grabby about re what reality is, you feel the creativity that is available just out of the non-attachment to a model of what it is you are seeing all the time. You're not reacting constantly to phenomena. So this is a wonderful talk again. Can you imagine we've been doing this for years? And I know I say this over and over. How can you keep coming up with either different ways of saying the same thing or different um, explications or completely different, um, unique, creative ideas. Talk about creation, creativity, and spirituality. So this is Ram Das from October 1987. It's marvelous that we have this, <laughs> this media library that's so vast that they recorded everything he did just about, I think.
Okay, Ramdas, here and now, and here we go. As your meditative practice or your devotional practices or your whatever your practices are for transcending your normal waking consciousness, transcending your identity with your body and your personality. As those techniques work and you are pulling back into the context in which you exist rather than identifying with your form, your awareness becomes more embracing of the broader gestalt in which you are, or the context in which you are operating. And that breadth includes a deeper understanding, an intuitive understanding, not an intellectual understanding, an intuitive understanding of the laws under which you as a form are functioning. It's like the statement when Christ said, had ye but faith, ye could move mountains. He didn't add, if you had that faith and that wisdom, you'd understand why you put the mountain there in the first place. And you wouldn't be in such a rush to move it. You see, that if you could, my guru used to say to me an interesting thing. He'd say, We'd be sitting there, and I was, this was at a time when Bangladesh was uh, in a chaos, a turmoil, just terrible. And I kept wanting to take my Volkswagen microbus and drive over to Bangladesh and to help the people in Bangladesh. And, and Maharaji would call me up and he'd say things to me like, Ramdas, don't you see it's all perfect? And I'd say, Perfect? Perfect? What about Bangladesh? What about Biafra? What about, and I'd start a list, all the, what about, what about the Holocaust? What about, and I'd start a list, all the horrible things of inhumanity and, and, and suffering and torture and all that stuff I could think of. And he'd go, Mike, don't you see it's all perfect? Now, most people, when you, they'd say that, they'd be embarrassed to say that. You know, what I heard from that was because he was so kind and he was so caring for people, at the same moment, his awareness had stood back to the place where he could see the perfection of the unfolding of the law. And he could see that the way in which you as a creation were unfolding was as it could be and as it should be. It was all following fine. There wasn't an error. Nobody had blown it. There wasn't a mistake. See, that's like the Job dialogue. And I have <clears throat> worked to quiet my mind enough, and I'm very much in the process of it, and I fall on my face, and I get up, and I fall on my face and get up. But I have moments when I, I understand the perfection of it all. It's a certain way that one is with regard to one's own human heart and the nature of suffering in the world, that you have embraced it enough into your being in a context of joy, and this is too complicated to go into this morning. I, don't, I think we can't go into it all. But that process 
is one that allows you to be quiet enough so that you can look around and see and say, yes, yes, it's all happening in a lawful way. And then the question is, if you are creator and the creation is all going along fine, what do you do? What's to do? One of the answers is there's nothing to do. There's nothing to do. And that just the... Now, if the... Manuel threw me a curve one day. He said, well, of course, he said, you're only... All of your systems are only relating to the beings which are working within the realm of karma. I said, you mean there are other beings? And he said, oh, yes. It was like negative numbers. He said, oh, yes. He said, these are only the beings that have chosen to create out of working with darkness or with resistance to light. He says, that's the creative choice, to work. You create by working with darkness because the light is what you start from. And in order to have the thing manifest, you form resistance and stuff. And that's the stuff you mold with and you play with. And then as you awaken out of it, you come back into this, this the, the totality, the light, the love, the truth, the harmony, whatever you, however you want to play with it. I'm leaving little flaws in this discussion, but we'll leave them for the moment. You can raise them in questions if you can find them. Uh, <clears throat> if you can see the whole circle of the game now, that you take birth into your own creation, and in the course of the creation, one of the things that happens perfectly within the creation is the realization that you are caught in your own creation. That is a product of the whole process. That is, in other words, your awakening is lawful. It isn't an outside of the, the event. It wasn't some, it wasn't, it's interesting. At one point I said to my guru, aren't karma and grace the same thing? You can hear this question. It's a very interesting one. I mean, because in the system of grace, all of it is done through some divine intervention, through grace. And karma is all just lawful unfolding. And I said, isn't it lawful? Like the fact that I met you, Maharaji, isn't that somebody says, what grace that you met your guru? I said, what do you mean grace? It was the lawful unfolding. It was, it was my time to meet him and his time to meet me. And there was no grace about it is not a good thing for bhakti to say, devotional yogi. And his answer to me was, when I said, aren't grace and karma the same thing? He said, it's not something I can discuss in public. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he never talked about it after that, so I guess I was too public for him to talk. I wasn't ready. No. Uh, join, join the club. <laughs> the best questions you don't have answers for, I'll tell you. 
So the circle is that you take birth, you get lost, you go through the curriculum. In the process of the curriculum, you start to see through. It starts to have, the fabric starts to have a kind of a thinness to it where you start to stick your nose through it and you can see through it with one eye. Now, this is, it, this is an interesting moment when you start to see through the veil and start to come back into your own creativity as opposed to your own creation. Because there's an amb amb ambiguity as to which side is the right side to be on. I once went to a, uh, a jazz festival in Newport, uh, Massachusetts some years back with a friend named Maynard Ferguson who was a jazz trumpeter and his wife and Tim Leary and I and somebody had given us a little bottle of pills <laughs> which they told us were something called mescaline and we'd never had that before and uh, most of the chemicals we'd had acted within about 20 minutes so um, uh, mescaline didn't however and so before Maynard went on the stage and we were going to walk around, we were all backstage with the musicians and there was a great big curtain around, a big canvas thing, and then the audience was inside. And um, we passed out the mescaline and we all took some mescaline. And uh, then I was left with the bottle. And um, so after 20 minutes, nothing happened, so I figured it didn't work, so I took another dose. and. Then nothing worked after another 20 minutes, so I took another dose. So by the time it worked, um, it was a different realm uh, for many days, actually. And so I, I was walking around at the outdoor. I was walking around the outside, which is where all the band members were, and it was it was the the in place to be. You understand? I mean, you had a pass that said you could be back with the musicians, and I came to this little hole in the canvas. And I looked out, and there was somebody else looking back at me, see? And he said to me, do you want to get in? And I said to him, I'm in. <laughs> see, and it was exactly, that's the place you get to where people that are deep in their personalities say to you when you start to get out of it, dissociation. Don't you want to come back into your personality? And you're in another place and you're saying, I'm getting out of my personality. And the question depends. And it's interesting because uh, I mean, in a way, Esalen is right at the interface of that. You have people going in both directions. <laughs> people that absolutely are delighted with their personalities and they're they're changing the chair arrangements and they're changing the drapes and they're changing the, the if the if we put the vase over there and I went away and I what an excellent experience I had I redid the sofa you know and it's like it's like they just changed the nature of their prison cell all the way and and uh, Because as you start to extricate yourself from identification, you begin to see the whole nature of the history of his story unfolding. 
It's like, to me, what, whatever this awareness is, I mean, I, because I'm speaking through this mouth and I have this charming personality, you identify me with this personality and this body. But that's merely the vehicle through which we're meeting. And your confusion about me makes you treat me, and if I am not very conscious, I'll buy into your projections and I'll start to identify with my personality again or with my body because that's what we keep doing to each other. And what I notice has happened to me is that as I extricate myself from my identification with my personality variables so strongly, <clears throat> they start to... Um, that process, which is, again, lawfully happening, has its effect on the tenacity with which the personality variables stayed a certain way. That is, that has its effect, and those personality variables start to change, and they start to lighten and loosen and be in relationships to things in a different way. And as I said last night, they become style. They become your style rather than your root identity. They're merely stylistic ways for you to be in form. As the awareness pulls back, one of the things you see is the way in which your mind creates models of reality and expectations about what's going to happen next which is a way in which you keep control as a somebody. And you notice yourself creating these models, and the minute you have a model of reality, then you look around in the universe to see where everything you look at either supports or infirms that model. And that's the way you see the world. In other words, it's as if you have a computer program in your head that processes, processes data in a very limited way based on your software. Now imagine a computer that has a, a, a software that constantly optimizes the data that's presented to it. Just imagine what that would be like. A computer that is so empty that it takes in the data and it moves it around and it gives you all the possible options. Some computer programs add, some subtract, some computers give you spreadsheets. One that gives you spreadsheets doesn't usually write poetry. How about one that takes in the data and gives you, and it's writing poetry and spreadsheets and all of it. It's just a, a liquid, I mean, I'm, I'm just playing with the, with the idea. But I notice that as my mind gets less grabby about what reality is, like if I look at somebody's face, for example, and I do a lot of things where I focus on the point between the eyes of another person and I look directly at them, 
and they look directly at me, and we just sit there. It's a meditation. It's a concentration meditation to them, and they're not used to it. And you just turned into a gargoyle. And you can watch them go. You, you watch their face turn into something. They're trying not to show it because you're so horrible looking. See, and they're going. They, they, they try to tighten up so that you won't see. They won't see. And you begin to notice that in your perception, the minute you relax a lot, your expectation, oh, I'm looking at a human being, and they're going to look like this. It turns back into lights and shadows. And then you'll notice that as you put your focus on this part of the cheek, it'll turn into one form. If you put your focus on that part of the nose, it'll turn into another form. And you will just start to see you'll start to work with the sensations that are available to you in a kind of a liquid way and they're constantly changing and you'll feel the incredible creativity that's available to you again just out of the non-attachment to a model of what it is you're seeing all the time. I remember I went to a, um, this is the other end of that perspective. Is this too much or are you? Are we? I went, um, uh, this was way back in the early 60s. It's another drug story. Um, uh, I, Tim and I were going to do an all-night show in New York called uh, The Long John Neville Show, I think, something like that. And we drove in from Millbrook, which is about, um, I don't know, 100 miles, 80 miles upstate. And we, uh, in those days, LSD came in sugar cubes. And people had dropped a drop of acid into the sugar cube. And so we broke a sugar cube and split it. But it turned out that my part had more. Um, so he carried the first half of the show. Um, so I couldn't even find the microphone. So, but but be, before we got to that stage, we went to a. So before that, we went to a party. And at this party, there was a woman who was painting uh, various people. She was painting their, their doing their portraits on the walls. And she had done various portraits. And so when I came in, she said, could I do your portrait? And I said, certainly. Now, my consciousness was in a very liquid state. So she started to sketch me and I thought who am I and I thought well I'm a young man looking into the future so I just sat there thinking of myself as a young man looking in the future and she sketched and sketched and sketched and then I got kind of bored with that image and I thought I didn't move she said now don't move at all and I said I won't move and I thought who am I now I thought well I'm her lover and I just thought I'm her lover and I started to sit there. And she took her gum eraser and she erased this and erased that and she started to sketch again. And then I kind of got tired of that one. And I thought, well, I'm really an old wise man. And she took her gum eraser and she started to erase again. And I hadn't changed my, exp I mean, I wasn't doing anything. I was just sitting there, just thinking. And afterwards she said, she erased it. She said, I'm sorry, I can't do you. Your face is just like um, silly putty. It just keeps changing all the time. And I began to hear the way in which our models of ourselves start to 
determine the nature of our muscular structure, which is our projection outward, which is what gets other people to see us a certain way. You can feel the whole way the game is locked in. And that as you quiet your mind down about who you are, so that you're not busy being her lover or man looking at the future or whatever that is, you just are a presence just here. See, it's the difference between I am and whatever comes after that. See, I am, and then there's a little line. Fill in the blank. Whichever one you fill in the blank is a limiting condition. Anyone, I am God. I am a man. I am a seeker. I am a spiritual person. I am old. I am young. Whatever you are. Whatever you fill in that blank, it starts to limit you. It imprisons you. And finally, behind that is just, I am. And you rest in I amness. And then you see this incredible, liquid, creative, lawfully creative process occurring. And you're aware of the lawful nature of it. And you're also aware of the incredibly beautiful unfolding of it all. When you get over your panic about life, because you're not so stuck inside of it, you begin to delight in the way it works. But your delight, the joy has got to embrace suffering. And that's the one that most people balk at. Because they can't extricate themselves, themselves from their human identification enough to be able to allow suffering without reacting against it. Whether it, especially if it's someone else's. They go into, oh, it's terrible because they just can't be in the presence of someone else suffering without doing something about it. That's the human part of it. That's because we're afraid of death and because we don't see suffering as, as part of growth. And yet, when you look back at your lives, every one of you has suffered. And you tell me now whether you're sure you would have given up all that suffering when you understand, wasn't that part of what's got you in this room at this moment? Isn't that part of the conditions that prepare you to be ready to be compassionate and to be ready to grow and to be ready to hear? And do you want to take it all away? Was that, you sure? You sure? It certainly stinks when you're having it. But in retrospect, it's a whole other ballgame. There's a that as the mind gets quieter, there is a way in which your awareness is present. At, you see the edge between chaos and cosmos. You see the way in which the law and the dissolving back in is all right at the edge and you sit right with that place and you watch it all and you learn you're able to be in the presence of chaos much more of confusion much more somebody comes up to me and says I'm really confused and I say wonderful they see that as a problem because their mind doesn't isn't in control and I see that as it's like beginner's mind. It's a great place in which to see the possibilities again. There are other ways of getting yourself extricated from your personality 
and from your identification with your manifestations so you can get back into that kind of creative realm where every, your life is, you begin to appreciate it as your creation and all of it is this incredible creative abundance pouring forth. You see your mind as this incredibly just pouring abundance of stuff coming out of it. And you begin to delight, you experience the term game or play or dance, all those words which are used, leela or dance or game. Don't you see it's all a game or a play? Hesse says in uh, Journey to the East, Leo says, don't you see it's all a game to HH? I don't think it's a game. It's a game. It's a play. And you're at that interesting stage where you are creative, except that the creation itself is so awesome, all you can do is stand, finally, in reverence, in awe of the breathtaking nature of the creation, of every bit of it. And the quieter your mind, the more the moment itself is so much, because in it is everything. There was a moment, I was doing a book with Sidney Cohen, who was, um, he was the good guy in LSD research back in the 60s. He was uh, head of the drug administration, or the government DEA. You know, he was the bad, depends on where you're looking, bad or good. <laughs> and um, he and I did a book together and, um, with a, a photographer. And the photographer brought out 200 pictures for us to pick from, and he picked all the pictures that showed people in acid trips going, and, you know, they, the fetal and all this kind of stuff. I picked pictures of people playing flutes and fields and making love. And there was only one picture both of us picked. And it was a picture of a guy on the kitchen floor down like this looking at some spilled Coca-Cola. <laughs> See, he picked it to show the triviality of the, this, quote, psychedelic mind state, you know. They take drugs and, you know, they'll look at anything. <laughs> I hadn't looked at that Coca-Cola. I knew that in everything is everything. I mean, it's as above, so below. I mean, the whole thing was the creation was in that Coca-Cola. And I was just with that guy right in there, and I, you know, and I began to see that the quieter you are, the more the moment, all of it is so thickly rich with, with every place you look is like a doorway into this incredible wisdom of the universe. And so you keep emptying in order to just be with the moment, and the moment is so enough that the future and the past are just, they're parts of the present moment, but that you're not any longer waiting for anything or wishing back. I don't wish for the 60s or I'm not eager for the 90s or nothing. This is enough, this moment. This is it. This is what it's about. The fullness of this with all of the uncertainty and confusion and potential chaos and all of this stuff, it's enough. And it's so rich. And the quieter I am, the richer it becomes. And I remember sitting in, in uh, meditation cells 
where you're bored, you're so bored, you want to climb the walls. I mean, and you know, you're, you've been meditating and you're bored and you started at three in the morning and it's only 4.30 in the morning and you've got till 11 at night and you're bored already. And, and you just say, ah, boredom. And you start to look at the incredible beauty of boredom. Ooh, boredom. Oh, am I bored? What is the nature of boredom? And it gets so thick and rich, the dynamics of boredom, until, wow, can I be bored today? Would you let me be bored for a few hours? You know, because it's so rich, you know, instead of, oh my God, I'm bored, because we're always so busy reacting. I'm bored. Let's turn on the television. I'm bored. Let's go to the movies. And you begin to look at all your states that way all of your states that way, and all of your states just take on this very uh, rich, thick process of unfolding. And it's like you are a witness. So you go from being the creation to being the witness of the creation. And then finally, when you have surrendered even soul into it, you are the creation. You are the creator. You are the creator, but you're not self-conscious. There's not hey, I'm the creator, because that term is the creation. All there is is the creator, and you are the creator, but you're unwitting. I mean, out of my guru would pour miracles. I mean, he just didn't even know what he was doing, and they were just pouring out of him, and he had no consciousness about it. He wasn't busy saying, I think I'll do a miracle. That'll blow his mind. <laughs> he, um, he, at one point, I'll just... We'll take it back. <laughs> he said at one point, just give you one miracle story and then I'll stop because <laughs> they're there I got a whole book of them right here a thousand of them. A, um, a sadhu comes to visit Maharaji that's a, a holy man in India seeker and um, he's somebody that knew Maharaji from years back Maharaji used to be in the jungle most of the time naked or he used to be known as Crackpot Baba. And he had a piece of crack pot. He'd pick up a, a, somebody's pot they threw away, and he'd stick it on his head, and that was all he had. And he'd, he'd use it for water or to toileting or begging or whatever. And then when it would break more, he'd throw it away and find another piece of broken pot. So he got to be known as Crackpot Baba. And that was one of, that's my lineage. That's, um, <laughs> I have a way to go, as you can see. <laughs> and, um, so now in his later years, I didn't know him until he was uh, 78 or something like that. Uh, but in his later years, uh, his devo these devotees who would try to grab him and hold him, because he'd just walk off into the jungle and disappear, and nobody knew where he was, and you couldn't control him or anything. They'd build temples in the hopes that they'd keep him there, and he'd stay there for a few weeks at times or something, and then he'd just go walk away. He'd either walk down the road or somebody would send a car and he'd get in and drive away. And uh, he had business 
who knew what his business was? I mean, he, he had business, like uh, he'd drive all night long to come to a woman's house at four in the morning and knock on the door, and she'd say, oh, Baba, I was just sitting praying to you. And he said, well, what do you think I'm here for? And, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so he was at the temple, and uh, this sadhu came, and the sadhu looked around at this big temple and said, oh, whatever he could, crackpot Baba, whatever he was calling him in those days, um, Lakshman or Neem Karoli, or, you've certainly fallen. You were a great sadhu because you didn't have it, want anything, but now look at all these material possessions you have. You must really want stuff. And, and of course, all the devotees were listening to this, and they were furious that this guy was critical of Maharaji. And not only that, but they, he sat right down in Maharaji's tucket on his bed, you know, instead of on the ground in front of him. And so all the devotees were furious, and Maharaji was saying, you know, cool it, cool it. And finally, um, and the guy was just upbraiding Maharaji. And the man was holding a shaligram, which is a, it's a stone that um, is used in, um, in uh, a puja, in prayer. And it comes from a river, a certain river, and it's usually a black stone. It's very smooth and a, uh, an oblong stone. And he was holding it, the sadhu, and Maharaji said, Oh, what a beautiful shaligram. Let me see it. So the guy gave it to him. Maharaji said, Can I keep it? And the guy said, See, I knew. You just keep greedy. You're greedy. You want things. You're so attached. You're so attached. You want everything. No, I need it for my puja. So Maharaji gives it back to him. Maharaji says, I'll buy it from you. The thing is worth about five rupees. You could get it in the bazaar, which is about half a dollar. No, Maharaji, I need it. I can't sell it. Maharaji says, give you 40 rupees. So there's a moment pause, and the sadhu says, well, if you need it, Maharaji. See? And so he hands it to Maharaji. Maharaji borrows the money, gets the money from somebody, and gives him the 40 rupees, and the guy takes the 40 rupees, and Maharaji's sitting there with a shaligram, and Maharaji says, give me your money. So the guy says, I knew you weren't going to give me those 40 rupees. Here, here's your 40 rupees. I knew you were greedy. Maharaji takes the 40 rupees, and Maharaji says, no, give me all your money. Maharaji, I don't have any more money. Give me the money that's tied inside your jacket. So he unpins inside his jacket. He's got 500 rupees. He says, Maharaji, this is all the money I've got. Maharaji takes the money, and he dumps it into the coal brazier that's burning in front of him. And the sadhu loses it. <laughs> Maharaji, that's all the money I've got. What are you? Oh, oh. And he's screaming and yelling, and it's all right for you. You've got this down. Yeah. Maharaji turned him and he said, oh, he said, I didn't realize you were so attached. <laughs> and he takes a pair of chimters or tongs and he reaches into the fire and he starts pulling out new rupee notes. And he pulls out 540 rupee notes and hands it back to the guy. And everybody is like, you know, when a thing like that happens, everybody is like, they're frozen because they can't believe they're seeing what they're seeing. And they just go like, you know. That. And the guy got off the tucket and sat down. And a moment later, if you say to Maharaji, you just did a miracle, he looks to you like a child 
who has no remembrance or recognition of what he's done. It has nothing to do with him at all. He didn't know he did it. It's not like he thought, I'll teach that guy a lesson. It was merely a sequence of events. Greed, da, da, da. And you see, when a person is the creator, how mindlessly the creation really occurs. You begin to get a sense of the mindlessness of the creative act. That it's not mediated with, I think I will do a painting of a tree. It is treeness manifests. Treeness manifests. It's a whole different realm. And you can experience the way in which so many artists open the door of the awareness to go beyond their mind, to be a conduit through. And you begin to wonder, when I started to deal with the issue of creativity and law, whether or not there is creative act or just remembrance. Whether it is merely transcribing that which exists or whether it's actually creation. One got a sense, for example, with Mozart, that the door was just open and he was copying it as fast as he could. And everybody was saying, oh, thank you, Mozart. And he could have said, I'll tell him if I see him. <laughs> you know? Because in fact, he was merely a vehicle through which it came. And you get the same with uh, a lot of the uh, great artists. It's enough. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. <laughs>